Shortly after the United States entered the Second World War, following the bombing of Pearl Harbor, a young teenage lad tried to enlist in the Navy. He was only 15, but large for his years, and he told the recruiting officer there in Richmond, Virginia, that he was 16. The officer looked at him rather skeptically, shook his head, and said, Son, I'm sorry, you're not old enough. Not to be deterred, the young man returned two months later, convinced that the recruiter would not remember him, and so this time, he listed his age as 17. And again, the answer was, I'm sorry, son, you're not old enough to serve. He waited a few weeks and returned a third time, only this time in reply to the recruiting officer's question regarding his age, he said that he was 18. Naval officer looked at the teenager and smiled, and he said, young man, we would really like to have you in our Navy. The only trouble is you're aging so fast that I'm afraid we'd have to put you on a pension before the war is over. You know, sometimes people want to age a lot faster than possible. Those of us who are here as parents and grandparents have learned that sometimes children want more responsibility than they're capable of handling. Or more responsibility than is good for them. And sometimes they have a, a tendency to think that they're a lot more mature than they really are. But that desire to grow is a good thing. It's a necessary thing. And as I was thinking about that, I thought to myself, wouldn't it be wonderful if every believer had that kind of desire to grow and mature in their faith, like that young naval recruit? What's sad, however, is that some, and this is difficult to understand, some Christians never seem to advance beyond that entry level in their walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, they've walked through the door of salvation, but that's as far as they got. And they're just inside the doorway of Christianity. I want to start by stating the obvious. And that is that you and I are repeatedly admonished. Indeed, we are encouraged. Indeed, we are commanded to grow and mature in our walk with Jesus Christ. What's more, I need to remind you that there are given to you as a Christian this morning untold resources and wonders waiting for us in regards to our walk with Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that we have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Peter says in 2 Peter 1.3 that his divine power has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. Additionally, God the Holy Spirit is indwelling every person here this morning who knows Jesus Christ as their Savior. And as such, a failure to grow is not because there are a lack of resources available. It's because of our unwillingness to grow. You cannot faithfully study the Scriptures without being challenged by the opportunities and the excitement that is given to us 
to grow towards and mature towards Christ-likeness. And again, as you read the Bible, you discover that the Scriptures paint a strikingly beautiful portrait of what a Christ-like person looks like, acts like, and feels like while we're here as pilgrims on this planet. And that's why we have been looking at the fruit of the Spirit talked about in Galatians 5. And one of the things that I'm hopeful as we've read through this passage now, this Sunday morning, for the fourth time over, that you didn't miss the context. Paul says first, there's a conflict going on between the flesh and the spirit. Internally, there is a battle taking place. He mentions that in verse 17. And then just before listing the radiant, attractive fruit of the Spirit, you have another list given that's not at all attractive. In fact, it's downright ugly. It's repulsive in nature. And what Paul is going to tell us is that you and I have two opportunities, two options before us this morning. You can either live your life by the flesh or you can live your life by the Spirit. And a person who isn't filled with the Spirit and exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit will ultimately begin to live his or her life after the categories of sin listed among the works of the flesh. See what he says regarding these works of the flesh? In verse 17 he says there's sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. And he says, I could go on and on and on and on. And he said, but I want to warn you, when you practice those kind of things, I'm not talking about that lapse where you do something foolish, you make a poor choice and you fall into that sin. Paul says, I'm talking about the person who habitually lives like this. Those who live like this, he says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then Paul, against this backdrop of life apart from the Holy Spirit, paints a beautiful picture of what happens when we're allowing the Spirit of God to control our lives. He says there's going to be some qualities, some virtues that you will manifest. Again, just to remind you of what we've said before because it is so critical. First, we said these are produced by the Spirit and they are foundational to who we are. Friend, what makes you a Christian is that you have residing within you the Spirit of God. Secondly, we noted that the fruit is singular in nature. It comes as a package deal. You can't pick and choose and say, well, I'm going to be faithful today and I'm going to exhibit a little bit of peace and love and joy, but that's self-control, man. Believe me, Doug, that is definitely on the back burner. No, it's a package deal. Third, we said that fruit is something you can see. There's recognizable evidence of God at work. And finally, we said the fruit of the Spirit comes in sets of three that are displayed in the context of relationships. And as you break down these nine virtues, you discover that love, joy, and peace relate to our relationship to God, patience, kindness, and goodness, 
deal with our relationship to others. Faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control that we want to look at this morning deal with our relationship to self. And this is fruit that ripens in regards to our mastery of ourselves. And Paul begins by talking about these last three, and he says they're faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As I was thinking about why Paul places these last in this list of nine virtues, it may very well be that he does so because this is the area where there is the greatest battleground between our flesh and the Spirit of God in us. These are some virtues that are difficult. They're all hard to do. In fact, in and of ourselves, and we'll mention this, we can't manifest these virtues. But, but faithfulness and, and gentleness and, and self-control, those are indeed a challenge. He says, if you're walking by the Spirit, you're first and foremost going to exhibit faithfulness. Now, when Paul talks about faithfulness, he's not talking about faith as a theological term, which gets us into the family of God, but faithfulness as an ethical term. And what he's saying here is that when you're filled with the Spirit, you're the type of person of whom it can be said, he's a faithful guy. He's a person of integrity. He does what he says he will do. Proverbs 20, verse 6 says, Many claim to have unfailing love, but a faithful person who can find. A faithful person who can find. Some translate it, who can find a faithful man. You know, faithfulness is a, is a rare virtue these days. A faithful person is someone who's reliable for important tasks. They're loyal to their friends. They're dependable in emergencies. In practical terms, it's simply doing what you say you will do and fulfilling your personal responsibility. It's showing fidelity. Faithfulness is probably the single character quality most lacking in our society today. People just shift around their positions from right to left all the time. You don't believe that? Just listen to the candidates running for office. People lie as a matter of course. There's no convictions, no core values. And in a flash of discontentment, they undo their commitments. And faithfulness that remains, faithfulness that is steadfast, is not a human character trait. It's something that's produced by the Spirit of God. Christ demonstrated ultimate faithfulness to His Father in coming earth at Christmas and then following 33 years of living here he he went to the cross and it's only as the Spirit of God begins to work in our life that we can exhibit this faithfulness it's keeping your word if you're a Christian and you'll say you'll do it friend it's as good as done Because that's what a faithful person does. There's a loyalty. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 says, It is of the Lord's mercies 
that we are not consumed. Because his compassions fail not, they are new every morning. And you know the next line. Great is thy faithfulness. Somebody ought to write a song. Oh, I think they already did. Romans 3.3 speaks of the faithfulness of God. 1 Corinthians 1.9 and 10.13 says that God is faithful. Psalm 36.5 says the faithfulness of God reaches to the clouds. Psalm 89.33 says, Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from you, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. Saying there that God is honest. He's a person of integrity. And again, these are essential virtues for a spirit-filled life. You speak the truth. You live the truth. You can be trusted. You're honest. You're steadfast. There's an unwavering loyalty to that which is true and right. Let me ask you this morning, the following, and I, I ask myself this. I will never ask you to do something that I don't do, by the way. Are you a person of your word? What about your promises? Your confessions and testimonies? Are they true? Are you someone whose life is marked by truthfulness? It's an attribute of God, and we're to emulate Him. God is truth and he cannot lie. Revelation 1, 5, 3, 14, and 19, 11 say that the Lord Jesus is the faithful and true one. 1 Corinthians 4, 2 says it is required of stewards that a man be found faithful. And we're all stewards of the gospel and faithfulness is required of us. Faithfulness with regards to our spouses, our children, our grandchildren, our parents, our employers, our employees, our friends, and people in general. But you know, most of all, it's faithfulness to the Lord Jesus. And the reality is that one day you and I are going to have to face Him. And we're not going to be judged as the world counts success by our educational achievements or how much money we've made or how much we've given. Friend, you and I are going to be judged by how faithful we've been in regards to what it is that God may have asked of us. And I don't know about you, but I want to hear from our Savior those beautiful words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And as I was reflecting on this, I realize that one of the main qualities that I look for in people who serve in leadership, especially as elders in a church, are people who are faithful. They do what they say they will do. They complete assigned tasks. And if there's something that takes place, they'll, they'll let other people know. They're disciplined with their time. They keep their word. They complete the job. And in the process of it all, they treat people well. And again, as I was reflecting on this, I am grateful that I have been blessed to serve as the pastor of this church and I've had elders that I've been able to work alongside of who were faithful men. 
Two such men are now in heaven. You know who I'm talking about, Larry Culberson and Preston Kappas. And I called both Carol and Carla asking permission to share this. But you know, I went back and I checked my funeral notes with regards to what I said regarding those men at their memorial service. And one of the things that I commented on was the faithfulness of those men in regards to their family, their friends, and this church. And I've often done funerals where I've said some very gracious and loving things about people who were very deserving of it. I learned a long time ago not to say things from the pulpit that I don't really mean. And I remember after those funerals, I had some folks come up to me and they said, Pastor, when, when, when you do my funeral, I want you to say something just like that. And I kind of thought, okay, let's start with this. How faithful are you? How faithful are you? 1 Timothy 6 says that it's required of a man of God that he be faithful. We speak the truth. We live the truth. We uphold the truth. Titus 2.10 says, Showing all good faithfulness so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. You want people to adorn the doctrines of God. You want people to be faithful to the truth, speak the truth, live the truth, tell the truth. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22, Flee youthful lust, pursue righteousness, faithfulness love and peace with all those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. Listen, if you want to know what a major sign of immaturity is, it's that person who refuses to accept responsibility. They've never grown up. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. I was looking at the time, and we'll just, we'll get it done. We'll get out of here. Turn to Matthew 25. It's worth our time in turning. I just want to read the parable that Jesus gives here regarding the parable of the servant and the talents. Matthew 25, Jesus here is giving what is commonly referred to as the Olivet Discourse. And I want you to just, just read this passage, what Jesus says in regards to this parable regarding talents. Matthew 25, look please at verse 14. He says again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went out, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received Five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. 
His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I I knew that you are a hard man, investing, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. Now notice carefully verse 26. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the banker so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags, for whoever has will be given more. They will have abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Wish I had time to develop this in its entirety, but let me just suggest four very important truths from this parable. Number one, God gives everyone different gifts. Every person in this room have been given a gift, a talent. The NIV talks about bags of gold. And clearly some people have many talents and are capable of multiple tasks. But it's God who determines the talents, the gifts that are given to those people. And God is never going to say, you know, I wish you had had that gift and used it for my kingdom. No, God knows what gifts to give you. Second, more responsibility is good. Did you notice that the two servants who invested their gold received more and the one who wasted his gold had that gold removed? Listen, in God's kingdom, responsibility is given to those who can handle it. Thirdly, people who are lazy with God's gifts are punished. Don't forget that. And finally, only people who invest get a return. And God wants you and I to be faithful with the gifts talents, the resources, the abilities that he gives to us. And furthermore, God's kingdom is organized in such a way that if we're faithful in small things, we'll be given more responsibility. You know, sometimes people wonder, why in the world am I you know, going through such a hard, difficult time? Maybe you've not been faithful with the little things, and so God knows he can't trust you with more. Now, where does this power come from? 
Well, it comes from the Holy Spirit. He works in your heart and in my life. And if we're faithful, if we're trustworthy, if we're loyal, if we're truthful, if we have a a deep, pervasive honesty, God gives us more abilities and more, more blessing. But He wants us to be faithful. Notice the second quality in this final grouping of three. And that is gentleness. We're back in Galatians chapter 5. The King James says meekness. It's a a gentleness, a tenderness, a, a caring towards other Christians and to all men. It's being even tempered, unpretentious. It's having your passions under control. It's having a humility. It's translated in some places in in the scriptures as being lowly, depending upon the context. It doesn't mean that this person who exercises this gentleness or this meekness is lacking in internal strength. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Gentleness is, is having strength under control, where you're willing to pardon and forgive those who have injured you where you speak words of correction when it's necessary and you know when to remain quiet. It's being tender. You don't overreact and you don't underreact. There's a balance in your life. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this concerning meekness. He writes, The man who is meek is not even sensitive about himself. He is not always watching himself and his own interest. He is not always on the defensive. All that is gone. The man who is truly meek never pities himself. He never, he's never sorry for himself. He never talks to himself and says, you are having a hard time. How unkind these people are not to understand you. He never thinks how wisely wonderful I am. If only people gave me a chance. And then he writes, What hours and years we waste in this. But the man who has become meek has finished with all that. To be meek, in other words, means that you have finished with yourself altogether and you come to see you have no rights or deserts at all. The man who is truly meek is the one who is amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. I like that line. That it seems to me this is an essential quality. By the way, just look down the page at Galatians 6.1. He says, brothers and sisters, if someone, and we'll be looking at this next year, and by the way, that's not that far off, so, you know, that sounds so, man, you're still going to be in the book. No, next year, January, It says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. That's the very same Greek word. But, he says, watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Same word. Friend, how do you restore somebody who's fallen into sin? You do it with tenderness and gentleness. Jesus in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 said that the gentle 
are going to be those who inherit the earth. James 1.21 says that we're to put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and in humility, same Greek word, receive the word of God implanted. Titus 3.2 says that we're to show gentleness to all men. 2 Corinthians 10.1 says that we're to speak with the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who himself modeled it for us. Not going to take the time to turn, but if you're taking notes, just jot down Philippians 2, verses 3 and following. Admittedly, it's not the same word, but it's the same idea. Were we to have, were to have the same humility that the Lord Jesus Christ had when he humbled himself and he left heaven's glory at Christmas and he came to earth and he took on the form of a slave and he went to the cross humbling himself. And because of that, you and I are commanded to be humble. What does this virtue do for us? Well, it helps us form and build better relationships with people. It helps us respond properly to those unexpected situations. And finally, it helps us to be strong and courageous and under control. And that is the last virtue. See what he says? He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It simply means we, we get control of our, our passions. We bring them into subjection. We keep things in check. Proverbs 16.32 says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. We control our tongue, we control our sexual passions, our desires, our selfish ambitions for glory and positions, and our temper and our emotions. We don't fly off the handle. You know, as I was thinking about this, I realized that that failure to exercise self-control can absolutely ruin your life and it can destroy a career. A few years back, I read an article from the Religious News, but tragically it was picked up by the Associated Press and also NBC News. And it concerned the president of a very good theological seminary of 700 students that was in the Midwest and how this man had to be dismissed from his position because he couldn't control his temper. And I'm going to change the article so that I won't identify neither the man nor the seminary. But the article read, The president of a theological seminary was fired Tuesday, September 14th, after trustees determined his temper had imperiled his leadership. In a statement released by the board, the president, unanimously elected in 1995, had confessed to misappropriation of anger in a July trustee board meeting. After hours of agonizing discussion and interviews with the president and vice presidents, a majority of the board concluded that the expressions of anger admitted to had irreparably damaged his ability to lead the seminary. Carl Weiser, chairman of the trustee board, said the decision came after a special two-day meeting of the trustees. It's a very difficult decision, he told Religion News Service. 
Despite the president's problems with his temper, Weiser said he admired the former president's passion for spiritual revival in the Great Plains and his creative leadership skills. Weiser said, he is an outstanding man, and I appreciate him greatly. Can you imagine getting fired from the seminary because you couldn't control your temper? You know, I know of two in the last five years prominent pastors, pastors who had radio ministries, they've written books, they are pastors of megachurches, who lost their jobs because, among other things, they couldn't control their temper. They failed to exercise self-control. And before you cluck your tongue at them, ask yourself, how am I doing? Is my temper under control? Do I exercise self-control? As I was thinking about this, I thought about Samson, strongest man of his day, but he was unable to master himself, and it proved to be his ruin. Contrast that with Joseph, who learned to conquer himself and submitted to God even though the consequences were unjust. And the end result is God gave him power and authority. Listen, self-control is desperately needed. It's not being sloppy or lazy or aimless. It's being self-disciplined. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says we are to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And did you notice, by the way, the last line of verse 23? It says, against such things there is no law. Now what does that mean? Well, friend, I think Paul here is giving us the answer as to why the fruit of the Spirit makes a, dis- a difference in our world today. And that is when you and I begin to manifest these qualities in our life, people can't lay a hand of accusation against us. And so what you find here in these timeless virtues is the qualities that you and I are to manifest. Now let me remind you that it takes time. We will manifest these, but they can increase in their effectiveness, in their visibility. They're not superficial character adjustments that happen overnight. You can't find it on the internet at Amazon and have it shipped to you by overnight express. It doesn't arrive at your doorstep neatly packaged with no assembly required. It doesn't come by accident. It comes when you and I commit ourselves to allowing God's Spirit to work. Let me also add this thought. It's possible to have this fruit in your life, and if we fail to continue on with the needed discipline that we are to have, it can easily spoil. It's not In other words, people who at one point have joy can experience depression. People who at one point have peace can have conflict. People who have patience can quickly become impatient. 
People who have control of self can easily fall into unbridled self-indulgence. So what do we do? Let me suggest two things. Number one, resolve each morning to walk in the Spirit. Friend, when you wake in the morning, offer a conscious prayer to God that you are going to commit yourself to His control in your life. And secondly, throughout the day, strive to maintain that walk. Don't turn away from the Spirit so you can flirt with the flesh or legalism. You realize that there's a a raging battle taking place, but with God's power and with the presence of His Spirit, you, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.18, you fight the battle well. And you allow that new man, that regenerated person who lives within, to create in your life righteousness and true holiness. And when we do, we'll have a life of productivity and a life of great joy. Let's pray. Our Father, we readily admit that in a world full of anger and hate and envy and jealousy and revenge and rage, we sometimes find ourselves influenced to do the same. And so I pray that each and every day we would decide that we are going to be people who are known and characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. May we, as well as others, come to understand that this is a process. And as we grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ, we readily admit that we all have a long, long way to go. But Father, we are your disciples, and you desire that we grow and develop and produce more of these virtues each and every day in our life. And so we pray that by your Spirit, you would strengthen us towards that end. And we've asked it together this morning in Jesus' name. And everybody agreed and said,